Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. Early in the first season of the Aerospace Advantage, we had an incredible conversation with the commander of the 509th Operations Group at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri, Colonel Keith Ghost Butler. Ghost successfully commanded the bomb group and went on to command DET-5 of the Air Force Operational Test and Evaluation Center at Edwards Air Force Base, California, and now has returned to Whiteman as the 509th Bomb Wing Commander. If you missed episode 18 of the Aerospace Advantage, it's worth a listen because we're going to pick up from where that conversation left off to discuss what's new with the B-2 and, of course, the newest stealth bomber, the B-21 Raider. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that the Mitchell Institute is keenly aware that it takes a lot to ensure airmen are effectively trained, organized, and equipped to take the fight to our adversaries anytime, anywhere. While you'd be proud of what you see at any Air Force unit, you would be hard-pressed to find another unit that must be ready 24-7-365 than the 509th Bomb Wing. The reason is simple. These crews must be ready to fly anywhere around the globe, no matter the defenses, to launch both nuclear and conventional strikes. And there's no spool up for that sort of mission. Crews and their aircraft need to be ready at a moment's notice. It's as close to being at the tip of the spear as it gets. When top leaders think about strategic options, the men and women at the 509th are often the ones making it happen. Think about what's on their shoulders. We ask them to stand ready and strike any target on the planet and return home within 24 hours while also being nuclear certified. And that is a really big deal. We've talked about this a lot. The biggest limiting factor when it comes to the B-2 and its crews is we don't have enough. Cold War defense cuts reduced the buy to 21 aircraft. We lost one in a crash in 2008. With that single write-off costing the nation 5% of its stealthy long-range strike inventory. Given the scale and scope of today's threat environment, 20 B-2s are spread too thin, meeting real-world requirements. COCOMs are asking for them all the time. They're essential for all major war plans. B-52s and B-1s are useful, but they lack stealth and other attributes necessary for operations against modern threats. The nation still needs more long-range stealthy bombers. And that's a key reason why the Air Force is developing and fielding the B-21 Raider, the follow-on to the B-2. It's an opportunity to fundamentally reset the bomber inventory, and it'll replace both the B-1 and B-2. B-52s are getting re-engined and modernized for more years of service. Few others in our military understand these dynamics better than Ghost, so let's check in with him to learn more about today's bomber mission and hear what it's like to command this wing, fly the B-2, and prepare for the B-21. All right, well, Colonel Butler, welcome back to the Aerospace Advantage podcast, and I just cannot believe that it's been almost three years since we sat down with you and Crank to talk the B-2, and you know, it, it's been one of our most listened to podcasts. So the pressure is on my friend. <laughs> well, you know, and people are really interested in your mission. They love the B2 and they want to learn more. Thanks, Slick. It's great to hear from you again, man. Two old friends catching up and it just happens to be over a podcast. So I absolutely love it. And at the risk of sounding prideful, I don't know anybody who doesn't like talking about themselves or what they do. Yeah, people love the B-2. Weidman is a unique base with a unique mission and certainly a unique aircraft. You know, we just wrapped up the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl events just about two weeks ago now. And what an amazing opportunity. So it reinforces that no matter how long you're in this job, when you step away from it, you realize pretty quickly this is a cool job. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing what what you all do, and and you just celebrated your 30th anniversary of the B-2 and stealth air power at Whiteman, and I think the official date was December 15th, just a few weeks ago. Can you talk us through what it was like to meet some of the original crews, and how is their world different from what you have today? I mean, as I understand it, the jet has really evolved a lot, and obviously demand for the jet has gone through the roof given the nature of the threat environment. 
Mm -hmm. Yep, it, it certainly has. So December 17th, 1993, man, that was the arrival of the first B2, which happened to be the spirit of Missouri. As many of your listeners may know, we've got, we had 21 aircraft and all of them are named after a state with two exceptions. One is the spirit of America and one is the spirit of Kitty Hawk. Otherwise, all the other ones are named after a state. So pretty iconic, right? 30 years ago, first jet shows up. And during that celebration, we had the first B-2 pilot, Northrop test pilot, Rick Couch, was there. And what I mean, what a living legend. The stories that he's got and and still providing support to his country. He was involved with the B-21's first flight, who happened to be a B-2 pilot turned test pilot, is, is amazing for us. So another legacy. The first wing commander, Lieutenant General Marcotte, the first operations crew commander, General Frazier, was an attendant. And, and, and really cool, not that, that that wasn't, the first dedicated crew chief of the B-2 that marshaled the first jet in, well, he came back and marshaled the jet back in for the 30th anniversary. Senior Master Sergeant wow. Keith Meadows, really, really cool. And, and I mean, this, gave I mean, me the stories go ghost. on. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome, man. And if you want to put just a little a point on that, that sortie that they recreated the reenactment, if you will, of the 30th anniversary, was another pilot's first flight on their first dollar ride. So she got out of the airplane, came up on the stage, and Rick Couch, the first pilot, gave her her B-2 coin in front of everybody. Man, it was awesome. Wow. What a celebration. Congratulations to everyone. Thanks. You know, and, and to your question about the world was different today than it is now, the demand for it, that, you're spot on. You know, back when this aircraft first got here, back in the early 90s, those first couple of years, you're developing the tactics, techniques, and procedures because it didn't exist. You can't use the, what the B-52 or the B-1 or an F-15 or an F-111 did. It's the culmination of all of those things. But how is it different? 117 was right in there with it. Weapons integration, right? Okay, we got a new weapon. It's been certified on the airplane. Figuring out how to fly and employ, how to maintain it. When you don't have years of experience and something hiccups on the airplane or some flight control computer resets itself and you go, okay, well, let's try it again. I mean, how cool would that have been to be part of something when you're the plank owner of the operational side of it? And the stories that were coming out from these folks who blazed the trail for us were just absolutely fantastic. And then as we got more familiar with the jet and then the first time we went to combat back in 99 in Kosovo, that really set the stage. So, and it hasn't slowed down since, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've been part of the mission for a long time. So I've got to ask you, what is it like to now be the wing commander? I mean, I'm sure this command is very unique and I've got to ask you, how's it going so far? It's busy. <laughs> it is busy. See, I have had the very fortunate experience and frankly, the honor of having been at Whiteman for now four different assignments. And that's pretty rare, uh, really rare, actually. And so sure. the, the opportunity to, to be at the helm of leading the 509th bomb wing. I mean, it's the 509th, man. It's the iconic. It's historic. It's an incredibly important unit for the formulation of us as an air force, for who we are as a country and what it means for strategic deterrence. We're six months in and time is just flying by. We, it's a never ending juggling, if you will, of balancing both our nuclear and our conventional readiness to respond to combatant command requirements and or the president of the United States, if required, the continuous exercises that we've got both here in the States and overseas. Of course, with a dual dock mission set, you've got inspections on both conventional and the nuclear side, and those don't ever end, nor should they. And then again, the demand signal from combatant commands of we want the B-2, we want flights over here, and there's places that we want to go, and there's places that, frankly, we shouldn't go that other places and other aircraft can cover down on. It's a stealth aircraft. We want to be able to protect those signatures. So all that combined <laughs> makes for a pretty busy schedule. Yeah, it, it really is eye-opening. And I remember chatting with you at AFA last year, and I know there was a little bit of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. I think, you know, this might be the next assignment, and I was so excited for you. And now it's just cool to watch you six months into it and, and all of the responsibility that you have. And not only just that, but, you know, the fact that you and I go back a long way and for the audience, we, you know, Ghost and I were newly minted wingmen together in the triple nickel. And we went through our initial checkouts together. Uh, we flew combat together, but that's not all that we have in common. 
the fact that we're both prior enlisted and we both have a unique perspective about leading airmen and you know, having been airmen that wore stripes on our sleeves. So, so given that, talk to us about some of the unique challenges facing your airmen, the ones that are living in this world of nuclear certification. And, you know, the B-2s, they, they have to fly into the most defended territory on the planet. So nothing short of perfect can be tolerated. And the jets are a couple decades old now. So you've got to be seeing some aging airframe and systems issues. So can you paint a picture for us of, you know, what it's like on the flight line these days? You bet. Well, well first of all, Slick, one screen. Oh, always green, brother. <laughs> there, there it is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. How blessed are we? How lucky are we? 32 years of service up through E5 over to ROTC, and then you blink your eye, and all of a sudden, another quarter century goes by, and you're still serving. So it's it's absolutely amazing what we get to do. And, and you're absolutely right. The unique challenges that are faced by the Airmen of Whiteman Air Force Base and their families, our civilian workforce and our contractors, it's all part of what it takes to make this mission successful. The jets are 30, well, just over 30 years operationally old. First flight was back in 89. And you start to see the the ages that go with that, the effects, the maintenance and, and such. So when you've got three decades of experience to build on, both from an active duties perspective and now with the Air National Guard, the 131st TFI unit, and I, I would submit not even arguably the best TFI unit in the Air Force, if not DOD, the the this, the experience and the stability that our guardsmen provide for our active duty folks is second to none. It absolutely is. So when you have an aging airframe for low density, high demand, small fleet dynamics, you take the low observable, the radar cross section, the fleet health of our aircraft, right? So aircraft available doesn't necessarily equate to mission capable. An aircraft that doesn't have LO considerations can go fly and execute its mission. We can do that too, but if you get seen by the adversary, there's another unique aspect to that, and that's our fleet health of the LO. That's a whole other series of AFSCs, Air Force Specialty Codes, and enlisted members that take years to learn not just the science, but the art of maintaining these aircraft. The maintainers are figuring out what the avionics are about, the navigation systems, our jet troops, APG, or our crew chiefs, if you will. You've got diminishing supply chains. The companies that help build this aircraft, sub-subcontractors, if you will, they don't exist anymore. And that's not a new or unique challenge to just the B-2. It's across the Air Force. So we always have to keep those things running in mind. Now, we're also in the middle of the country, right? Knob Noster, Missouri. We're just an hour from Kansas City. And this is really good Midwest living here. It really is. Our community partners and the businesses that help support the Air Force and white men are second to none. They love our airmen, and they know that. We know that, too. So it's a wonderful relationship we have. Now, there's this thing also that you're familiar with, Slick, and that's PRP, Personnel Reliability Program. And in the case of our defenders, arming use of force or underneath the the PRAP moniker. That's an extra layer of oversight and security that we have to have for our Air Force to make sure that we have reliable and ready airmen ready to perform that nuclear mission. This extends to both on and off duty, medical, your financial, marital statuses, all of that, where in another unit that's not PRP, there may be some things that you don't have to report to your chain of command or your leadership, not at Whiteman, not at a base that has a nuclear mission. It's another layer of security to make sure that when we do that nuclear mission, when we train to it, when we execute to it, it is ready to go, and we have only the best airmen that are mentally and physically ready to execute. It's hard to really wrap it into words for somebody that hasn't been part of a nuclear mission, but frankly, it's part of our deterrence. Our strategic deterrence as a country is rely upon the credibility and capability to go do what we say we can do. Other countries that have nuclear weapons don't do PRP. It's another layer that we put on there to put the professionalism of our airmen for Air Force Global Strike Command to know that we can actually do it. Yeah, I mean, Ghost, there's just so much there. Again, you know, you give me goosebumps when you when you talk about the folks that you have the opportunity to lead. And and I know that you understand the gravity of the the responsibility that you have. And I'm sure that your airmen love working for you and, and, and of course, having Diane at your side doing this. Of course, we could talk about this stuff all day because I know you're such a leader of people. But, you know, I, I want to 
dive back into the mission quickly because you know we we see a lot of stories in the press about bomber task force mission these days and you know these first started around about the time we we last chatted and you know can you walk us through what's involved in executing one of those and you know what's unique about how a B2 bomber task force mission works you know maybe compared to you know deploying a fighter squadron or, or anything else yeah yeah sure I'd love to so bomber task forces or BTS are the current construct if you will for how to present forces to a combatant commander in a in a non combat in combat environment which we could do if we needed to flip the switch as well we used to do them for longer periods of time and there was this thing called the continuous bomber presence primarily geared in the Indo-PACOM region well, we did it over in Europe as well, of course, in CENTCOM 2 during the War on Terror. But it was sending bombers <clears throat> to a location for three or four months at a time, and they would just conduct operations that were there. And as you well know, as well as every maintainer out there, that when you take a jet or jets and you move them to a different part and you don't have all the backshop maintenance available to you, that's going to create challenges. Bombers are no different. So... A few years ago, we switched from a CBP construct to the bomber task force construct. And frankly, part of that change was made so that combatant commanders in the joint force understand, because they know what a task force is, but what is a continuous bomber presence or a bomber assurance and deterrence mission set? So the, 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 the lingo, if you will, so the organizational structure and operational concepts fit within the larger task force construct of a combatant command for a theater campaign plan. So that has helped tremendously. In reality, what it's done is it's shortened it down. We go for a couple of weeks at a time between B1s, B52s, and B2s. We'll go to different parts of the world, places that traditionally maybe we haven't gone to. For example, last fall, we in the 509th did a, a bomber task force to the European theater. And some of the cool things we got to do on that one was we took a B2 and landed in Norway for the first time. In and of itself, is that a big deal? Maybe. But when you consider the fact that a B-2 uh, is landing and doing operations on the main land of the European continent for, for decades, that's a big deal. You're Absolutely. integrating with other air forces that maybe have or don't have LOs or how to do a, a NATO F-35 integration with a B-2. Or, for example, we take off and go past Iceland up over the Arctic down into Alaska Thanks, Canada, for the for the roadway. And then actually got down to fly Red Flag Alaska, drop weapons, and then fly all the way back to our BTF location. I mean, that's global air power. I don't know what else is. It demonstrates that we can move between combatant commands, the coordination that has to take place. And to your point about how do we actually do that and the coordination, they happen months in advance, months we started to figure out what our desired learning objectives are. How do we support a combatant commander's theater camp plane plan from the three perspective, the five perspective, the two from an intelligence perspective, the six about what does it take to support a B2? And then we have things like agile combat employment, right? ACE. We're working through those as well. We're, we are trying to skinny down and we're being successful at it so that we can bring less people using modern day communications, reach back, and an understanding that there's a faster way to get the job done. Now, it'll never be at the level that fighters do it, to your point. When we talk about how we're island hopping and doing things that uh, Air Combat Command, USAFE, and PACAF are working on. But at the same time, we're the bombers. We don't have to go at the same level that the fighter aircraft do. But we work very closely with them to make sure we're going to the right place at the right time to integrate to go have either a pulsing effect or to support an O plan, whatever the combatant commanders are asking us to do. They're not easy, but we make them look that way. Yeah, you, you certainly do, Ghost, for sure. And, you know, I, I'm sure that there have been some amazing lessons learned from you and your folks at the wing while you're executing these task force missions in the recent years. I mean, you know, even going back to the notion of the B2's 30th anniversary, we never would have done this back in the days early in the program, but now it's routine. It's really incredible. It is. Being able to have a bomber that is in, again, let's call it Australia, Guam, Hawaii, yeah, anywhere in between out there. And just the presence and the range. When you have an aircraft like the B-2 that has a 6,000-mile range, and when you put a tanker up next to that or they meet you along the way, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. 
the amount of time that you can fly. Hey, we want to send a message. So we're going to take off from Guam. We're going to fly to Alaska to integrate with a B-2 that took off from Whiteman and F-35s and F-22s in Alaska to go practice red flag and then fly all the way back to Guam and Whiteman. The ability to go do that is stuff we hadn't done in the past. We did it during, during, let's see, what was it? It was Iraqi freedom where we had jets taking off from Diego Garcia and Whiteman. That was the first time we had done that. But that was a one-off event that now we decided, hey, let's, let's continue to work that and normalize it. It provides, again, options for combatant commanders. It's certainly an assurance piece for our allies and partners as far as that extended deterrence of the nuclear umbrella for getting back to strategic deterrence. And it's a very effective messaging for our allies. Yes, sure, we can take off from Nob Nostra and fly 36 hours to go do a mission in Libya if we need to. We can also go into somebody else's combatant command their backyard, if you will, and stay for as long or as little as we want. We'll do conus to conus missions or long Ds as we call them, anything that's 16 hours or greater. We'll go over to uh, Indo-PACOM region and go execute an integration vol and then fly back to Nob Noster. All of that is continuing because it continuously sends that message of we're America's bomber force, we're America's air force, we are air force global strike command, striker nation. And we can do it from our backyard or we can do it from somebody else's backyard. It makes no difference to us. Yeah, you know, and that really is a great segue for a thought that I had here in, in asking you about how do you integrate with allies and members of the joint team as you execute these missions? And, and you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but, you know, we often see pictures of allied fighters on your wing or an F-A-18 in formation with you as you overfly a carrier. And I think it's an incredible attribute, uh, you know, of the bomber force that they can be anywhere anytime around the globe in a matter of hours, and they can integrate with almost any form of combat air power. They can. And so when you and I were flying together in the nickel and we were doing an OIF sortie or an OEF sortie, if the whole notion of being uh, in a two ship or a, uh, a four ship of that mutual support, right? You've always got a wingman, no matter what's happening, they're always there to help you and for you to help them. The notion of that is still alive and well, but we execute it differently. From a B2's perspective, we're a stealth platform. We don't want people right next to us because that might trip an enemy's IAD system to get an indication of where we are. So what we're going to ask for from them and what we practice is detached mutual support. I need you taking care of me. I need you helping me to execute my mission, but you might be dozens of miles away on or off access to provide an effect or a piece of support that I need during a, a high threat part of my environment, i.e. when my weapon doors come open or something else is going to happen. You can't execute that for the first time on the battlefield if you've never done it before. You've got to have the red flags. You've got to have the BTFs. You've got to have these integration events. We send our pilots, our intelligence folks, and our mission planners to other bases and other countries to have these conversations with them. And we bring them here. We just had a Royal Air Force three-star air marshal that was here learning about the B-2. We put him in the simulator and giving that senior leader perspective so that up and down the chain, both from a joint force and a combined force perspective, that to the extent that we can, we show them how we do stealth and the uniqueness of the B-2 when you get behind the curtain, if you will, to understand how unique this aircraft is the capabilities that we can bring, and frankly, some of the limitations, because not every mission set requires a B-2, nor should it. Well, Ghost, the 509th had to execute a stand-down of the B-2s a year ago when one had a gear issue, and you're back up and flying now, and, and obviously you could have generated sorties back then if you had to, and the circumstances mm -hmm. warranted it. But uh, how did your crews maintain their currency through that period, and you know what challenges did it drive from a unit perspective? Oof, well, that's a good question, man. That, that mishap in the subsequent five, six-month stand-down that we did was tough. I mean, pick a unit where a half of a year of not flying doesn't impact you. It doesn't exist. So we had to get unique. We, we utilized our really, really high-fidelity simulators in a much more robust environment than we had in the past. Some of our training and our stand-of-L for check rides, for example, we took some liberties and some very deliberate data-informed risk-based decisions on how to maintain our currencies. Now, to your point that you brought up in the first part of your question there, yes, 
had a combatant commander or the president asked us to go do something, we absolutely would have done it. We still have confidence in the aircraft. Shy of that, though, we needed to do our due diligence to really, really get down to the ones and zeros level about the root causes of that mishap. And it took time. It took a lot of engineering. It took a lot of analysis. Uh, we found out what it was. We started addressing it. And then as the fixed actions were coming into place, we started to fly jets at a lower level. So how do you do that? When somebody hasn't flown for six months, you don't take your youngest pilots and stick them back up in the air. You take your most experienced instructor pilots. They'll go fly the sim and then go jump in the jet and then slowly start to build your way back up. Now, you and I both know very well about CMR rates and your lookbacks and what it takes to maintain CMR. We have that both on the conventional and on the nuclear side as well. So the, the, the time to get back to what an 11202, if you will, kind of mentality or a 2v2 vol 3 mentality, that's going to take time. And we still are. Now, the combatant commanders and the Global Strike Command and U.S. Strategic Command, the demand, demand signal is still there. So again, how do you juggle this small fleet dynamics when they want you to go support an exercise or an inspection or another event you got to go do? So that's all about balance. And that's what we took, making sure that we are combat ready no matter what. At the same time, being able to work on developing our youngest students right out of our initial training, supporting weapons school, operational tests, our frontline units, and on and on and on. A lot of priority, priority one targets out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you're, the plate's been really full. And speaking of a full plate, I know everybody on the podcast who, who's listening, they, they just want to know because you're a stealth bomber pilot. And what we've been waiting for to learn is what is it like to fly the B-21? Because that's what you got to do at Det 5 before taking command of the wing, right? <laughs> I, I did not fly the jet, unfortunately, and I don't know that I ever will. So that's, that's kind of a hanging shad for me. But I have flown the simulator on the B-21. I have crawled around in the B-21 at Detachment 5 of Afotech, or the Air Force Operational Test and Evaluation Center, I ran Debt 5 at Edwards, and B-21 was part of my portfolio for IOTNE. And so when I had left, although the B-21 had rolled out, which I was at, and it was amazing to see the public get their first reaction of that amazing aircraft, the most deadliest technology ever created by human hands, as General Boussier, our Global Strike Commander, commander likes to say, and he's absolutely spot on. The B-21 is a sixth generation aircraft. What it's gonna do for our country is absolutely fantastic. You've seen it, you've seen the pictures, people have seen them as well. It's different, it's not the B2. Just the, the, the windows alone are different. And in the simulator, you can tell that difference. Uh, you walk in, you sit down, you're at the controls, and it is very evident this is not a B2, but we have a good handful of former B-2, both pilots, maintainers, and mission support folks that are working and continuing to develop with Northrop Grumman to make sure they get this absolutely right. And it is really, really exciting to see it. Well, and, and, and again, I, I thought I was just going to get a, you know, I, I, I could tell you, but then I had to kill you. So you, you gave me a well. lot more <laughs> than I expected, Ghost. So thank you for that. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's neat for just for me personally, having worked, you know, in the, the sub layers of the Pentagon, uh, it's neat when I see a headline and I can, can look at my wife and say, oh, I can tell you about this now. You know, yeah, I was working oh, yeah. with Ben and, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, with, when I was in the Pentagon, but that's all I can tell you. But, you know, quickly, you know, since we talked last and obviously now you're, you're the wing commander, you were the commander of Debt 5. So can you just quickly tell us, you know, what that command was like and what was your mission and, you know, how, how does it fit into the broader equation? Yeah, sure. So Afotech is a unique organization in that it's a DRU. It's a direct reporting unit. doesn't fit within the MAGCOM structure, and there's only a couple of them. Air Force District of Washington, the Air Force Academy, and Afotech are the Air Force's three direct report units, which mean they report to the chief of staff of the Air Force. Afotech has a responsibility of doing initial operational test and evaluation for major acquisition programs that come in. So whether that's a major upgrade to a system, say like the B-52, for example, right? You're tracking re-engineering, 
radar modernization and a bunch of other stuff that's happening. Some of those programs are big ticket programs, which means it falls underneath Afotech's purview. Afotech has four detachments inside it. I ran Detachment 5 at Edwards, which was basically everything but fighters. If it flew and it wasn't a fighter, it was underneath Debt 5's portfolio. So T7, KC-46, B-21, the new Air Force One that's being developed, the new SAOC that replaced the NAOC, helicopters, on and on and on. All of that was underneath wow. our portfolio. So it was a cool mission set. Debt 6 at Mellis runs everything with fighters. Go figure. But a detachment at Nellis makes sense, right? And they handle everything with fighters. The guys at Eglin down in Florida handle weapons and cybersecurity and a bunch of other stuff that they do down there, electronic warfare and whatnot. And then you've got the fourth detachment at Hill, which is dedicated solely to the ICBM structure. So Sentinel and all the things associated with that, that detachment will take care of the IoT and E for that platform as well. Well, yeah, thanks for that, Ghost. And it's so much responsibility that you've had. And with that, I just want to go back to the B-21. And, you know, the world watched in awe when the B-21 flew publicly for the first time on November 10th last year. And it was just amazing to see a lot of units are going to convert to the aircraft in the coming years. And it's just such an awesome thing. So uh, what lessons would you pass to them as someone who has been around the stealth bomber for a long time? And you know what it's like to lead these units. Yeah, so B-21 coming to at least three bases, depending on how acquisition programs work, Congress and the Air Force site basing, all that type of site activation and whatnot. Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota, with my good friend Shays Oakley up there right now, is in neck deep in military construction and developing the infrastructure needed to support the B-21, which is not going to be the same as the B-1. Dias and Whiteman are... Uh, bases two and three, respectively, or conversely, because the decision hasn't been made yet on what the second and third base for timing is going to work out to be. Now, that being said, understanding that stealth is one thing and the nuclear mission is something, and you combine those two things together, and you got to get them both right. You absolutely do. So the maintenance facilities, what I call the culture of stealth, to understand that and, and you know this, F-22 stealth and F-35 stealth are not B-2 stealth. They're different. The B-2 is all aspect, full spectrum, 360 stealth technology. It runs the gamut across infrared. It runs the gamut across audio for sound. It runs across the gamut for RF all the way around. That's a different way of sustaining, generating, employing, and maintaining stealth capability. And so the maintainers, the support folks, your intelligence, your mission planners, your operators, your defenders, all of that is part of the culture of stealth. When you add the nuclear mission to it, again, strategic deterrence, PRP, and that no-fail mission. And the reason that's so important is because when you and I were flying F-16s, we would have 500 bombs. We'd have GBU-12s, GBU-10s, 31s, JDAMs hanging on the wings, right? Sometimes rockets. And, you know, it, that, was, that was awesome. Loved it. But the effect of losing a 500-pound bomb or having a 500-pound bomb detonate, which might take out, let's say, a house, is not the same as a nuclear weapon that has the potential to take out an entire city. Right. The scope right. and sequence, the consequences of failure, the political implications, and the world-changing events that come with the responsibility of the nuclear mission – that hasn't been dropped in anger since the 9th of August, 1945. What do you consider to be success in the nuclear mission? What does success look like on, on the strategic deterrent stage? It means you're still alive. It means nothing happens. We're still here. Success means and looks like nothing happened. And that's exactly what we want. So to understand the weight and gravity of not Global Strike Mission, not the Air Force mission, but America's mission of nuclear and strategic deterrence that we get the honor to execute day in and day out, that's the benefit that we have. And it's not an easy mission. So the culture of what all that combined together is going to be part of that transition at Ellsworth and at Dias and then here at Whiteman. We've got the experience of already doing it. But again, B-21 does not a B-2. It's going to be different. And we need to make sure that we're ready to onboard that new technology with open arms. 
Yeah. And, and you really, really talked so much about the mission, which I re- really appreciate. And I know the audience does as well. And I, I want to ask you this in a different way because of your position and, and what you've we've done previously with Debt 5. And I'm sure you get asked all the time when you talk to folks about the B-21, you know, and I get it, you know, the aircraft is highly classified, so we're not stepping into any of that. But how do you explain to them why we need it and why it is so unique? and why it's different than the B2? Mm, yeah, it's it's a good question. I have to talk in somewhat parables because of the classification associated with it. But but the understanding of new technology has been around since the dawn of aviation, right? Bombers in World War II is what really enabled the success of the indo paycom theater at the time, a fight against Japan, and then, of course, in Europe, theater of operations against Germany. Having a 1,000 B-17s take off on a routine basis to go strike targets in Germany and in the European theater of operations. And then the fighter escort that we needed to do that. We started with B-17. The B-17 was just the workhorse of World War II. But the B-17 was not going to be successful or cut what we needed to be able to do in the Pacific area. It didn't have the legs for it, nor did it have the capacity of carrying, which is why we created the B-29. At the time, it was the most expensive acquisition program ever in the U.S. military, on par with the Manhattan Project. Not many people know that. But that's what the demand signal of, of Japan's theater of operations required, taking off from Guam and Tinian flying all the way to the Japanese islands and back. That's why we went after Iwo Jima. Part of being an island hopping campaign to support the invasion of the islands should have come to that, but also to provide a divert location for B-29s. Fast forward 40, 50, 60 years, and now we're talking about very similar things. The technology that we need to stay on the forefront of, both in capability and frankly in capacity, which is a big difference when you talk about we created and built only 21 B-2s because it was the end of the Cold War. And now when we look at what we're asking a B-21 to do in the capacity that we need as an Air Force, look, we don't have enough fighters to do what we need to do if we went to war. We certainly don't have enough bombers to do what we need to do. And when we talk about modern threats, modern integrated air defense system, the targets that we're going to be going after, whether those are shore-based targets or somewhat inland or deep strike into somebody's adversary homeland, all of that gets played into the mix. That's where bombers make their money. The ability to mass, the ability to provide surprise through LO, the way we do our tactics, techniques, and procedures, all of that matters. The B-2, as you well point out, Slick, is over 30-year-old technology. Does that mean it's the same technology it was in 89? Absolutely not. The improvements that we've made, the upgrades that are inside and outside the aircraft, it's not the same B-2 that it was back in 89. But when you have an aircraft that's getting older and older, you can only sustain it for so long, in some cases really long for the B-52. But our adversary's technology is getting better. What we're asking of our airmen and our maintainers to go do with modern ways of maintaining virtual reality, augmented reality, data analytics, the ability to move information in the environment in real time, you've got to be able to have the technology that can support a modern way of warfare. And that is what the B-21 provides to America's Air Force. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I'm just so fired up that we have leaders like you thinking about this integration and the, the importance to the deterrence message. And then obviously its capabilities should it ever be called upon to it do is. the work. And I just, hey man, I am a wing commander of the B-2, but I am not alone. There is legions of people that are out there, both in uniform and academics and think tanks. I mean, Gonzo alone, right? is what he's doing for AFA and the Mitchell Institute, uh, what Heather Penny is doing, and all of you guys, the advocacy piece is incredibly important to get both the public, our decision makers, and the check writers to understand that this truly is important and it's needed. It's a team effort. Yeah, well, well, thanks for that. And I appreciate the shout out to the team because they they really do work very hard at this day in and day out and, and, and beyond being passionate. They're just such experts of understanding this. And that just brings me to a, a question that, that we often talk about. From your vantage point, 
What do you say to people who argue that the bomber mission can be replaced by a standoff strike? You know, why is manned penetrating bomber in the mission still so important? Boy, it's hard to hard not to get emotional about that and passionate about that one. So a couple things, right? When you talk about cost per shot, whether that's a bomb or a missile, you get into things like hypersonics, real-time updates in flight, the ability to have in our quiver multiple tools that can do multiple things to go to achieve multiple uh, objectives. What a bomber provides our country, the mass that we can do, the B-2 can carry 80 500-pound GPS-aided, independently targetable weapons. No other aircraft can do that, period. Nobody. When you add hypersonics to that conversation and the effect that a hypersonic has, or for a Calcum in this case, the cost per shot, the ability for it to actually reach the target, they have the weapons effects that you need. It doesn't matter how many explosives or how much weight you can pack into a missile, there's still physics associated with that. You can't put and you can't create, nor can you generate the effects on a standoff weapon that you can when you're releasing a GBU-57 at the mop against a hard and deeply buried target that is way deep inside an enemy's country, as an example. So you need to have both that standoff capability and the affordable mass in a stealth environment that a B-2 and a B-21 will bring. We've got to have that understood in our nation's conversation about what it means to be able to carry out our nation's wars. Yeah, Ghost, again, just really, really impactful, your, your, your thoughts and perspective there. The other thing is when we talk about it quite a bit at Mitchell, but you know, how is the Stealthy Bomber mission going to change in a world empowered by joint all-domain command and control? So it's an interesting conversation, and I don't know that it's as much about a stealthy bomber mission. It's certainly additive to it, but joint all-domain command and control is independent of a platform. But, but to get after what I think maybe you're asking for, so how do we in real time from multi-domain, multi-service, multi-country, so joint force and combined operations, be able to do all-domain command and control? So let's, let's play a scenario out here. You and I are flying in a B-21 in 15 years from now or 10 years from now, who knows? And we're on our way to go conduct a mission. And the capabilities and the weapons that we've got on board are already assigned. They're planned out. We've targeted them. The mission planners have done what they've done. But now through JADC2, we're getting real-time updates. And as we're crossing an ocean or as we're going through a set of islands or as we're going across a piece of landmass, we get an update in the aircraft that says, hey, there's a new target that popped up. You're carrying the type of weapon that is required to achieve an effect on that target. We're going to change that target and we're going to release one of your weapons. The doors open up, a weapon leaves and the doors close and we're continuing on to our target. That's what joint all domain command and control means to a bomber crew. Or the ability to have in real-time understanding that we've released half of our weapons. And the AOC or the Air Operations Center knows that. Or there's a special operations task force that's nearby our plant, our flight path, that all of a sudden we find out we can help them out. Without joint all-domain command and control, you're doing those things manually or you're getting them through high-performance waveform, our, our classified email system that we have inside the B-2, ability to do updates that just take time because they're using legacy architecture rather than machine-to-machine -machine communications using open mission systems architecture, universal armament interfaces, and the APIs to allow separate systems created by different contractors to actually work together. And you're talking now at the speed of trust so that in real-time updates, the dynamicism associated with a modern battlefield can be handled with modern-day solutions. That's what JADC2 does. Now, when you add the stealthy bomber piece to it, you may have a capability. And again, going back to classifications is important because our route of flight is extremely valuable to us as it is to the adversary. So the classification systems, the encryption, the communication, all of that has to be taken into account so that we've got mission assurance. It's a long conversation to have about JADC2 and what stealth aircraft are going to provide to that. It's exciting, frankly.
Yeah, it really is. And the context that you bring to it has been in a way that we really haven't uh, talked about on the podcast so far. So I really appreciate that. I know we're getting tight on time. I've got a couple questions that I wanted to get through with you. Um, you know, the, the Air Force has projected IOC in 2027 for the B-21. So are you making preparations uh, at your wing to receive the jets? All the all the bases are, all three of them. Yes, Ellsworth is neck deep, like I mentioned earlier, in military construction. Dias is doing the same thing, as is Whiteman. Now, the record of decision from the Air Force to officially announce whether Dias or Whiteman's going to be number two or number three is, is needed before a lot of work can get done. But we wouldn't be doing justice to ourselves, the Air Force and the American public, if some of the conversations, the consultants, the architectures and other planning things are already being done. And they are. Those conversations are happening. Environmental impact studies, public hearings at both Abilene and at the Knob Nostra Warrensburg areas, those things are already going on. That's the lead turn, the long lead turn items that we've got to make sure that when that jet arrives, whenever it is, that we're ready to support it on day one. Yeah, that's that's huge. And and the work that you do, I'm sure, as a wing commander, and like you mentioned, the relationships that you have, the wonderful relationships you have with your community and, and keeping them abreast of, of what the Air Force is thinking is, is is great. Now, you know, Ghost, we have been doing a lot of work at Mitchell, understanding the operational construct of CCAs in the battle space. So how do you see the bomber mission integrating with CCAs into your mission and, and, and how do we train to it and what are the advantages and, and maybe disadvantages based, you know, from your vantage point? Yeah, interesting question. So obviously the Secretary of the Air Force and the Air Staff are are they're all in on the CCAs, as he's described at his LAF AFA conference that he went to. There are some conversations in certain circles that are happening with CCAs and bombers right now. But that's still in its infancy, embryonic, if you want to call it that. But there's absolutely a mission space for it. Just the distances, again, that bombers and long-range strike, that capability we provide to the Air Force and to our combatant commanders, the conversation about what CCA support, integration, how much, how little, where do CCAs take off from, how do they, how do they launch, what capabilities do they provide, what support can they give us? All of that is up for discussion, and it frankly needs to be. The ability for us to make sure that CCAs don't just remain as a fighter-centric support asset, that's a myopic legacy way of thinking. We've got to make sure that the CCA CONEMP and CONOP is at a broad level, whether that's an AMC tanker or cargo aircraft to support something that they're doing, or a bomber, or a fighter, or an ISR platform. All of that has to be part of the conversation. So I look forward to see where that's going. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and again, your perspective is absolutely spot on. Um, all right, Ghost, I promise last question, because again, tight on time, but for the two of us, you know, I feel like we're just getting started here. Mm. You know, one, one of the things I'm curious for the audience, what is something that's very day-to-day -day and routine in your world that, you know, is something that most Americans don't think about? Good question. Slick, I would say... The most Americans maybe don't appreciate or aren't aware of is that it's America's sons and daughters and their families that are supporting this mission. And we do this day in and day out. It's a Saturday after Saturday morning. We're still chatting here, recording this podcast. And right now, as we're talking, there are security force defenders all throughout Global Strike Command in some of the worst weather conditions in our country right now, defending aircraft, defending our bases. We have maintainers that are fixing aircraft as we speak. There's ICBM operators that are in the upper Midwest of our country that are on alert right now. Meaning the Global Strike Command mission never ends. We are 24-7 365. Our command posts are up. Our defenders are working. Our maintainers are ensuring the readiness of our bombers. Global Strike Command, Striker Nation, never sleeps. It is a no-fail mission. It is something that, frankly, is assumed, and our country appreciates that. But I think that would be the one thing I would want our, our fellow countrymen to understand. It is their own sons and daughters that enable this strategic deterrence day in and day out. We never stop. Absolutely amazing. And Ghost, I just cannot say thanks enough uh, for you taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule and 
everyone here at Mitchell sends their congratulations to you and Diane for taking command of this one of a kind, literal one of a kind wing. And I just have to say, you know, how proud I am to know you, to be your friend and think back, you know, how amazing this is for a young enlisted guy who used to repair air traffic control radars now flies a plane that cannot be seen by one. And I just think that's so super cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice way to put a feather in the cap, but thank you, Slick. I really appreciate our friendship. Hats off to you for, well, for the successes that you've done. You know, you've had an amazing career between weapons school and a Thunderbird. This is where we're going to stroke our own egos for a little bit here. But you've done amazing work. And, and what I think is the, what the coolest part about you, honestly, same thing, prior enlisted, all the successes that you've had. And in retirement, you're still involved. You're still in the game. You're still with AFA. You've taken your experiences and are bringing that to the public in a way that only a guy like you can. So hats off to you, man. Right back at you. Oh, thanks, my friend. All right. Well, again, I'm expecting this to be one of our top podcasts. Your insights are incredible and you're just such a genuine and authentic leader and the Air Force and and us as just everyday Americans, we're lucky to have you at the helm. So thanks to you and Diane. Thanks to you guys, the Mitchell Institute, the AFA. We really appreciate the time to help share the Air Force Global Strike Command message. And I look forward to our next in-person catch-up, brother. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.